and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is a quote from the second chapter of the prophet Joel. That is a description of God's new dealings with his people. Under the Old Testament, who had the Spirit of God and how long did they have it? A few select individuals received the Spirit of God for short selected periods of time. The Holy Spirit might come on David and he would prophesy. The Holy Spirit might come on David and he'd pen a few psalms. The Holy Spirit would come on other prophets and they would prophesy. Limited duration and limited object. Few men received the Holy Ghost under the Old Testament. It was the extraordinary relationship of God to men. Under the New Testament, there's going to be a new relationship. It is God's universal dealing with his people. He gives them his spirit. Now, we know these things, and so I, don't, I hope I don't have to rebuild the foundation of our faith in understanding what took place in the New Testament. But Peter says this is the fulfillment of the prophecy. God's going to pour out his spirit on his disciples, and he did. And Peter and the rest were the fulfillment of that. Now, the gifts of speaking in tongues and all the other power that came to the early disciples and the apostles, those, those gifts, those gifts, I just gave it away, those gifts were by Scripture's declaration the manifestation of the Spirit. God gave the Spirit to all of his disciples. But there were certain signs given to certain ones of those disciples to manifest the fact that they did have the Spirit. And it's called in Scripture the manifestation of the Spirit. Visible gifts were the manifestation of the Spirit so the people could recognize, yes, God is doing what He promised. God simply didn't leave them with Joel chapter 2. He gave them great signs to confirm Joel chapter 2. We have Joel chapter 2 the great signs and wonders recorded, and Peter's saying it was fulfilled. We don't need the signs any longer. We know that God's given his spirit, and we believe, according to the testimony of Scripture, that believers get that spirit. The next text of Scripture, well, let's remember, with John the Baptist bursting on the scene. Look at Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. Joel had prophesied that God would pour out of his spirit then we don't read much else in the Old Testament about the Spirit of God. And Matthew chapter 3, along comes a man named John the Baptist who's baptizing at the Jordan River. And he says in verse 11 of Matthew 3, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. God was going to pour out such a flood of the Holy Ghost that it would be a baptism because all those under that pouring out would be immersed in it, they'd be dipped in it, they'd be covered in it, they'd be buried by the Holy Ghost, just as he did with fire. When he poured out sufficient fire to inundate, bury, and cover the Jewish nation because he destroyed them. Jesus Christ baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire. These verses all tie together. Joel said the Holy Ghost is coming. John said, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And that isn't some special event. 
that isn't coming up out of the waters of baptism speaking in tongues. Except in a few cases in the book of Acts, where they were given the manifestation of the Spirit. Jesus would pour out his Holy Spirit in such a measure that people would be buried underneath the outpouring. John preached that message that Jesus Christ had been given that office. Notice, in these places, John is speaking of Jesus Christ pouring out his Spirit. It's not the Spirit giving church membership. It's Jesus giving the Spirit. And there's quite a difference between the two. Let's go to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Well, you make a great difference between worship today and worship in the Old Testament. Worship in the Old Testament, you live by the letter. The commandment said, bring a sacrifice to the tabernacle. So you brought a sacrifice to the tabernacle. The slaying of that sacrifice left you with the knowledge that you still a sinner, and you went home knowing more than ever that you were a sinner under the condemnation of God. What a glorious form of religion. But God designed it to show many the exceeding sinfulness of sin and to drive them to Jesus Christ. Yeah. So that when the New Testament came along, men would look forward to it. Mm-hmm. It was a great change. And that change was one of forgiveness, not one of condemnation. And instead of the dead letter of just keeping commandments, there is a personal relationship God takes up with individuals. Look at John chapter 7. Verse 37, in the last day, that great day of the feast, it's a short rather. What day would that be? What is it called in the Bible? Three words of Christmas. That's the feast. High Sabbath. The first day of the high Sabbath and the last day of the high Sabbath. That last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus soon cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now the, the Holy Spirit tells us something about what Jesus meant in the 39th verse. But this safety of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Sometimes when you read the statements of Christ, he's describing things that are going to happen for us. If any man came to Christ at that moment, he wasn't going to receive the Spirit until after Jesus Christ is glorified. Uh, let's read verse 39 again. This is a most important verse. This safety of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. Does this say anything in there about church membership? Or does this say that believers will receive the Holy Ghost? Believers will receive the Holy Ghost. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given. Men did not have the Holy Ghost in the Old Testament. Even when Jesus Christ was on earth, they didn't have it. Because those spoils of Jesus Christ's victory on the cross have not yet been earned. And Jesus Christ is going to earn them at his death and resurrection. And when he was seated at God's right hand, God would give him the spoils of that victory, and he would dispense them to his followers. And notice what it says in confirmation of that. Because if Jesus is not yet glorified, a Holy Spirit wouldn't be given until Jesus Christ is glorified. The God-man Jesus Christ, glorified above all principalities and powers, the way of God, would give his Holy Spirit to believers, and believers have never received that Spirit before. This was a change that took place on a great day, the day of Pentecost. 
Look at John 14. John chapter 14. Verses 16 and 17. I just, I'm just going to read a number of verses randomly from John, not randomly, but from various places in the Gospel of John. Verse 16, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even a spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But you know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Jesus Christ opened up a personal relationship with his disciples, with his advent into this world. God dwelt among men. God used to dwell between two cherubim that a holy that a high priest could go into once a year. And not and then he couldn't go in without the blood of animals. God did away with that and came and dwells among his people. And Jesus Christ was the physical manifestation of God in the flesh among men. But Jesus Christ was only here for a few years. We're going back to heaven. And he said, don't worry. I will send you a comforter in my place who will be with you forever. He's with you now, but he will be in you. And by looking at these words, you know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. The Holy Ghost is how Jesus Christ now dwells with us. That isn't difficult, is it? Jesus isn't saying, I'm going to give you the comfort of church membership. He says, I'm going to give you the comfort of Listen, church membership in churches in this world is not all that comforting. <laughs> but the Holy Ghost is always a source of comfort. Amen. If the Holy Ghost is not a source of comfort, it's because you bring him and turn him to be your enemy. Right. John 14, verses 26 and 27, But be comforted, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name. Remember, we can't be baptized in the name. Just, I just want to tie some things together for you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And he goes on to describe that peace is in that comforter that he is sending. Look at chapter 16, verses 26 and 27. We can read John 14, 16, John 14, 15, and 16 in their entirety, but we'll just pick out a few verses. Verse 26, when the comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And he also shall bear witness because he has been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. This is a divine transaction where Almighty God comes and dwells among his disciples in their hearts. I will be in you. Not will I be beside you, you will not be able to just lie on my bosom as John did. I will be in you. God, through the Holy Spirit, will indwell the believers on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ would give the Spirit. God would give it in Christ's name. Only believers on Jesus Christ would get that Spirit. 
it is conditional to all men. If any man says, let him come unto me, it's a wide open promise, a wide open offer for believers on Jesus Christ to receive the comforting, peace-giving ministry of having God dwelling in them. You say, doesn't regeneration give a man the spirit of God? Regeneration gives a man a new spirit indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but that Holy Spirit has not yet been activated to be your comforter. Because the activation of the Spirit of God is by your obedience. You initiate that act, you initiate that comforting ministry of the Spirit of God by believing. John chapter 7. If you then sin the next day, you grieve that Spirit, and you do activate it to a degree. That's why it's called grieving the Spirit of God, quenching the Spirit of God. When you repent of your sin and clean yourself before God and walk again in the Spirit, you revive that Spirit in your life. If you get back to the flesh, you quench that Spirit. It's a constant day-in, day-out responsibility of ours to walk in the Spirit and keep that comforting, strengthening, upholding, encouraging, peace-giving ministry of the Spirit active in our lives. It is something you are held responsible for individually. That will become important in a second. The Holy Spirit was to be given only to believers that believe on Christ. These are the points that we just read. I'm just summarizing what we just read. The offer of the Spirit to believers was made universal by the word, if any man serves. The offer of the Spirit to believers was made conditional by the same words. If you do this, I'll give you my Spirit for that act of obedience. The Holy Spirit was to be given after Jesus Christ was glorified in heaven. The Holy Ghost himself was to be given. It was not the Holy Ghost giving something. It was the Holy Ghost himself that was to be given. God the Father was committed to giving of his comforter, even the Spirit. It was a promise of Jesus Christ. I promise that I'll do this for you. It was this promise to his disciples. The Holy Spirit thus given was to have an internal relationship in believers. The Holy Ghost was to be sent by the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. And so forth. I think you all pick it up in the video. You can study the outline. I don't want to drag the whole evening out of Acts chapter 2. So let's come to Acts chapter 2 and look at it again. In the light of Joel, in the light of John the Baptist, in the light of Jesus' words in John 7, and in John 14, 15, and 16. This is so obvious, I hope, to everyone here. The day of Pentecost is fully come. The 120 were in room. There came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. The second birth of the second chapter. They filled all the house where they were sitting. Now, this filled, brethren, you've been baptized. Yes. You know, people like to look at the little flame of fire on their heads and say, that's a baptism. You can get in trouble when you do that. But when we talk about the whole house being filled and those people being buried in the spirit, you can't get away with just a little pouring and sprinkling on the head. He immersed these people with the Holy Ghost, verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. That filling of the Holy Ghost. Did it fill the group or did it fill the individuals that made up the group? These distinctions are important. Fill the individuals that made up the group and it was always done that way. 
If this church grieves the Holy Spirit of God by disobeying corporately, there are some very easily, and there probably will be, members of the ministry that still have an on-fire relationship with the Holy Spirit, even though the church has ruined theirs. Listen, there are no two people in this room right now that have the same measure of the Holy Spirit and the same effectiveness of that Spirit in their lives. We all bear to the degree that we are walking in the Spirit. And just because you don't want to walk in the Spirit, it doesn't affect my walk with the Spirit of God. And just because the church wants to disobey, as long as I'm doing what's right, God will still bless me with the comfort and ministry of His Holy Spirit. It is not a church-related relationship. You do not control my relationship with Almighty God. And I don't control yours. Acts chapter 2. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, Peter wants to explain this. All those who were watching are dumbfounded by this. These dumb fishermen standing up here preaching the glorious works of God. Not that they were doing very well, but the Holy Spirit was giving them utterance. Okay. And these Jews that were there in Jerusalem worshiping were hearing all the languages in which they'd been born. And I list 15 different language groups beginning in about verse 9. And so Peter's explaining what's happening. First of all, he explains about Jesus. The man just recently crucified, and he comes over to the 33rd, let's get verse 32. He's concluding his sermon. This Jesus, after having explained Jesus by prophecy from Psalm 16, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. We know God raised him up because we've seen him alive after his resurrection. Now watch this verse, and I consider the 33rd verse, it is the most important verse in the second chapter of that. Therefore, given that everything I've just told you about the resurrection of Jesus is true, therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted. Can you think of a word from John chapter 7 that was not kept with that word exalted? Glorified. Jesus is now glorified. This is the first moment he is publicly identified as being glorified at God's right hand. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, remember, the Father will send it in my name, having received the spoils of the victory on the cross and of resurrection, he has shed forth this which ye now see and hear. I will send the Spirit from the Father. That is all fulfilled in the 33rd verse. Jesus is now glorified the right hand of God. God gave to him the Holy Ghost, and Jesus is sent to two disciples to replace him since he is now in heaven. Jesus was a man, brethren. It would have been great to have had Jesus of Nazareth in this congregation. But he's not here any longer. He's at the right hand of God. Jesus can only be in one place at one time. You follow what I mean when I say that? I could be burned in the right now. You know what I mean when I say that? He's a man placed Jesus. How do you, the man placed Jesus. He's got a body. Now that body can do some pretty great things. But it is a body. And it's in heaven right now at the right hand of God. What is he left in his church? He said, I'll come to you. I'll be in you. To repay spirit. And he said forth this to his disciples. Peter goes on for finishing what David had said about the Lord. 
Verse 34, for David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, don't be in doubt about this, you Jews, that God has made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And unless you went to repent and be baptized in the name of this Lord, that was bad news. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly, that God has made that same Jesus. That lowly little carpenter's son is seen more than a cross. He went so willingly, and it was so easy for you to give him nail up there. God made him Lord and Christ. And he goes on to say in the 40th verse, and as many of the words we talked upon in dirt saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation, because that Christ did not like the way he was treated for three and a half years when he was in this world. And he was now sitting on the right hand of God as Lord and Christ. And there was a great and terrible day of those coming three years hence that was going to obliterate that generation. And they had a choice. They could accept Jesus of Nazareth to be baptized in his name. And I'm not talking about eternal life. I'm talking about physical life. Yes. And be baptized in his name. And what did Peter say? Repent. And be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. For the remission of sins, and we understand what that means, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. What we have is the New Testament. It's God dwelling among sins. What we have, you can have, and the condition for it is to repent and be baptized. So it's not the least, the slightest, you can't imagine it, you can't stick it in there if you were to write your own Bible, if you take membership all the way through the 40th verse. You know that is Almighty God dwelling in His people. And brother, he says in verse 39, for the promise is unto you and to your children. May I ask you what promise? If you will please go home and turn on your God's feet and find me a promise of church membership, I will come back next Sunday and return to the earth to one teaching you. But if you will go home and look up the promise, what promise will it be? What promise? The Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are far off and loving just where we are. Afar off, we are long way off in Jerusalem. We're even sick in Judea. We're the uttermost parts of the earth. And to all that are far off, even as many as, every single one. That the Lord our God shall call, and that is not only the call of regeneration, that's the call of the gospel. Everyone called of the gospel has a right to the state of God under the new covenant. Jew and Gentile. Listen, if all God gave us his church membership, nice, but it's not very great. And he gave us the Holy Spirit. I will be in you. Jesus Christ is limited by space and time in certain ways. When he was on this earth, he was in one place at one time. He's the man Christ Jesus. I'm not talking about his divine nature. I'm talking about the combination of the man Christ Jesus. He's in heaven, but he's in to his Holy Spirit. Jesus has said in John chapter 7, He that believeth on me will receive the Holy Spirit. This verse says you've got to be baptized in order to receive the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing. There is no such thing as believing without baptism. Yeah. Find me in the Bible a believer that wasn't baptized. 
faith without works is dead. It is one work to prove that you have faith. It's baptism. The two go together perfectly. Baptism is that first act of faith in identifying with Jesus Christ. To notice the baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the one sitting at the right hand of God, who holds the Holy Spirit, the good one. Just like he promised, my father will send him in my name, my father baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Look at Acts chapter 5. <clears throat> Peter is answering his defense before the council of the Jews in verse 29. We ought to obey God rather than men. Acts 5, verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, who he slew and hanged on a tree. Can you imagine who is standing and saying that, that it must be crucified Christ? Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. God has given something. This is the gift of God. It is the giving of the Holy Ghost. It is the giving of a Him. It is the giving of the Holy Ghost. It is not the Holy Ghost giving an it. It should be church membership. It's God giving Him. And my relationship with that Him, and my relationship with God and Christ by that Him, is not conditioned upon me. And it's not conditioned upon me being part of you. And your relationship with that Holy Ghost is not dependent upon me being related to this church. Can you imagine if you are limited to your relationship with the Spirit of God by your relationship to this church? If this church goes into earth and you try to obey that Spirit to leave this church, you'll leave the Spirit and lose it. Unless you create some other absurdity to cover yourself in that case. Like a membership in a church that's above this feeling. From universal church. From the serious church. And that is what takes place when you test people with that argument. Obedience was a condition for receiving the personal gift of him. Whom we now have within us. I find obedience. Did the Apostle Paul know anything about this gift? Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Brethren, there are so many verses on this point. I'm just going to assume, because I think I know most of you, the knowledge level of most of you, that you know these things. And believe me, I'm certainly not trying to search this point, because this is one of the easiest points in all. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, speaking of these Ephesian saints, in whom ye also trusted, that is in Christ, after that ye heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believe, you will sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Notice, there is the promise of the Holy Ghost. You will sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, the promise of the Holy Ghost. You will receive the promise of the Holy Ghost. Verse 14, which, that is the Holy Ghost, is the promise of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. We have God in us. We have God with us until we're in heaven in God's presence. 
And brethren, if I have to lose you because you're an error, you have to lose me because I'm an error. You don't lose your down payment for heaven. You don't lose the earth for your soul to rest upon. You keep your relationship with the Holy Spirit. It's not tied up in this church. It is a personal relationship. Some of you may be wondering why am I beating and preaching on this point. This is the number one argument. At 338 is the giving of church membership. Whereby you are then exposed to the relationship with the Holy Ghost. Paul said, Paul is simply describing a personal relationship that we have as the earnest of our heavenly inheritance resulting from our belief of the gospel. After you believe, you are sealed. Now does God take your seal on and off as you go in out of churches? That is a seal. You are given the spirit of God. Now whether you grieve that spirit, and it's hiding in a closet in your life and believe you, God, the Holy Spirit is not hiding closet for very long. It usually comes out with armor on and turns to be your enemy. Isaiah 63 is the most frightening passage of Scripture. For if you disregard the Spirit of God, he will turn to be your enemy. And he's not one to fight with. <laughs> believe me, the Bible warns us about a rolling lion walking about speaking who made a vow. That poor little thing can't hurt anybody without God giving him permission. But the Holy Spirit can hurt anyone who chooses. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We change membership. We might withdraw from a congregation. We might not join a church after baptism for a while. God said it is tied to belief and baptism, not church membership that we have a relationship with the Spirit of God. I just want to read some verses from our apostle, Paul, who's writing the scriptures of our dispensation. Speaking of Christ and God in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22 now, who hath also sealed us and given the earnest of the Spirit in our heart. That's your heart and your heart and my heart. There isn't in the heart of this body. And you really have to start Resting scripture to say, well, the church is a body, and the body has a heart, therefore God seals the heart of the body. He seals all of us with the Spirit of God. Because it's the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts, Jesus Christ gave that gift. Look at five, chapter 5, and verse 5. Now he that hath wrought us for the self same thing is God who also has given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. God gave the Spirit. God didn't give church membership. God gave the Spirit unto us, and he gave it into our hearts, according to these verses. Now look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that would be good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. The day of redemption, the granting of your eternal inheritance. You are sealed with an earnest until the day you actually have the full property. Is that a promise to the church, or is that a promise to individuals? What is the instruction of verse 29? Is that the church, or is that individuals within the church? 
Make no drug communication. For fear of your mouth. Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and commerce. There is an individual responsibility within the body of the church. Right. And God's relationship to us are the individual within the body of the church. Through the Holy Spirit. And it's an individual relationship to God. Look at Galatians chapter 3. This is a rhetorical question. We don't want to deal with the point Paul's making. Except the rhetorical question itself. Galatians 3 2. This only what I learned of you. Paul says, Tell me one thing. Receive you the spirit of the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. How'd you get the spirit? By keeping the law or by hearing the gospel and believing it? Does that tie in? Paul says this over and over again. Faith results in the giving of the Holy Spirit. It is not the giving of church membership. It is giving of the Holy Ghost himself. And faith involves baptism. There is no faith without baptism. You can't call yourself a believer if you haven't done the very first thing God expects of believers. What are you believing? I believe there's one God with a devil who do that and they do it well. James chapter 2, you are baptized. Galatians 3.14 That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. How do we receive the promise? Notice these words, the promise of the Spirit through faith. What made it possible? Jesus Christ died on the cross. Until he died and was glorified, there was no giving of the Spirit of God because they were the, the spoils of his great victory. Do all of you know the verses that talk about there being a witness within our spirit, that witnesses with our spirit, that we are the sons of God? Where does that thing come from? What is that? What is that being that tells us within our own hearts that we are the sons of God? Is that a light thing? That is a great blessing of the new covenant. Believe me, those men of the old covenant couldn't even have dreamed of such a thing. They had no internal witness like that. They went and offered their sacrifices and went home knowing I am condemned. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us all those sacrifices they offered simply made a remembrance of sin. We have a witness within us. When do you get that witness? When is it activated that you are a son of God, but upon your obedience in baptism? In the name of Jesus. Romans 5, Romans 8. At water baptism, in the name of Jesus, which is the answer and obedience and proof of your faith, God gives the Holy Spirit to his obedient saints in fulfillment of his promise. God promised the Holy Spirit to individual believers upon their faith and baptism in the name of Jesus. It couldn't occur until Jesus Christ was glorified in heaven after his successful death and resurrection. <laughs> And that had, took place in the day of Pentecost, and it has taken place every time since when someone is properly baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And whether you are in a church or out of a church, leave a church, withdraw from a church, transfer to another church, God the Holy Spirit still deals with you as an individual. You could be in a church that is on fire for God and everyone in there walking in the Spirit, and you're not, and you would grieve your relationship with the Spirit of God. There is a residual effect that takes care of you in your personal life. 
It is your responsibility to the Almighty God not to grieve nor quench that spirit. It is a personal relationship. Enough on that point. If you want more on that point, ask me. Argument number two, back to Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two. Well, if the whole issue hangs on Acts 2.38 and believing that the gift of the Holy Ghost is church membership, I guess the whole issue has just been put to bed. Not bed, because we don't want it to wake up. It's been put to death. It's in the grave. It's buried. It's six feet down. We've got a marker on it. One error we've been saved from, if that's the whole issue there, but we'll deal with some others. I've been told it's the whole issue. The gift of the Holy Ghost being church membership, the gift of the Holy Ghost is the gift of the Holy Ghost. Right. If you can find me a promise or a gift, the either of those two words or their concepts and related words describing church membership, I'll fall at your knees and acknowledge that you are wise indeed. Find me the word promise or the word gift associated with church membership. You know why? Because God never promised it because he couldn't speak for you. And he never called it a gift because it's something you've got to earn. Church membership is... God doesn't make church members. You make church members. Where did he ever... Enough. Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. This is argument number two. And if you start pressing Acts 2.38, Acts 2.41 will become the most important argument. Acts 2.41 is used this way. There are three words in the middle of that verse. The same day. The same day in that verse supposedly means that the baptism in the first half of the verse results in the membership in the second half of the verse. And I am not creating a straw man. I'm telling you exactly how it's used. And then it's tied in with verse 47 where we have the words, And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved, as if God made church members without your help, simply through baptism. I quote, Those who were baptized, 41 is a historical description of what took place on the great day of Pentecost. Do you know why the words the same day are in that verse? Because of the first verse of this chapter, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come. The day of Pentecost was the landmark day in the history of the New Testament. It is the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit. It is the 50th day after the Passover. It was a great feast day in Israel. And on that great day of Pentecost, God poured out His Spirit and forever changed his dealings with men. And that is why on the same day, the 120 jumped to 3,120. You read Acts chapter 1 and you think, what a pitiful little group. Why, Jesus Christ worked three and a half years and they only had 120. And God wants you to know in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41 that in one day God made that 3,120. But you look at that text and you try to get out of Acts 2.41 that baptism causes church membership. Try to get out of that verse that baptism happens at the same time as church membership. You can't prove that from that verse. It doesn't even come close to it. Right. The use of the words the same day tell you that it's two different events that happen to take place in the same 24 hours. But it doesn't even say it happened to the same group of people. Right. 
Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. What can you prove from that statement? Those that gladly heard the word of Peter as he preached and what he told them they ought to do, they were baptized in obedience to what he said. That's what it proves. What does the next statement prove? And the same day there was added unto them about 3,000 souls. It says that 3,000 disciples on the same day that Peter preached joined the 120. It does not say that it was the ones baptized. Peter could have baptized 5,000 on that day, and they could have gone back to their homes where they were from. Did you read that in the first part of Acts chapter 2? He could have baptized 5,000, 2,000 went home, and 3,000 joined. He could have baptized 15,000, and 12,000 went home, and 3,000 joined. He could have baptized 25, and 2,975 that John the Baptist had baptized three years earlier decided to join also. Do you... Do you understand that? The text doesn't prove anything. That's right. Some people under the sound of my voice have had the pleasant experience of asking whether this text is a proof text at the beginning of Bible studies and hearing that it is, and after asking a few questions, a half an hour later or so, asking whether it's a proof text, it's not. It is a proof text. Do you know what it proves? Those that got excited about what Peter preached were baptized. And sometime also on that day of Pentecost, 3,000 decided to join the 120. Do you know what it doesn't prove? It doesn't prove any relationship between baptism and being added to the church. Right. It simply says they both happen in that 24-hour period. And the reason we have the words the same day are because this day is important. The very words the same day mean they were two different events. One not causing the other. They were two different events happening in the same day. Read it for yourselves. This is the text, brethren, someday you may face. Whether I am here or I am not here, what will you do with Acts 2.41? Will, some, will you let someone tell you that Acts 2.41 shows that baptism causes addition to a church? Will you let someone show you that baptism and being added to a church must occur the same day? It's not that you can't even prove it's the same group of people in both parts of that sentence. And nowhere else in the Bible can you find that necessary. Right. You can go home on your Godspeed and look up the words the same day and have a have a lot of fun. I mean, the Bible uses the words the same day a lot, describing two events that took place in the same day. Go to those verses and try to get one causing the other. <laughs> it's just like in the same hour the Philippian jailer was baptized that we read about this morning in Acts 16. Does that mean that every time we preach the gospel to someone, they better be baptized within an hour? Brethren, I've been told that if we don't take members in in the same day in which they're baptized we're going to be disorderly and I'm going to be a heretic the overlords that told me that told me that they'd show mercy and allow that to be either a Roman day or a Jewish day so that Catherine's baptism could stand bless their hearts I'm forever in gratitude because she was baptized after 6 p.m. on a Saturday evening and taken in the next morning. God is my witness, and there are witnesses in this room that I am speaking the truth. But that baptism wasn't heresy because it was within the Jewish day. I'm still working on trying to figure out what it means if we're ruled out of fellowship. <laughs> I didn't know we had any. <laughs> I mean, I get these registered letters telling me that 
we're not going to be in fellowship and I'm going to have to suffer the consequences and show them to Sherry and ask her, what's the consequence? What is this fellowship that I'm going to miss out on? I thought, the the only fellowship I know about, brethren, short of heaven itself, is right here in this room. And I don't have any outside of it. Because you are the fellows with me. They say baptism results in church membership. They say that when a person is baptized, God adds them to the church. I hope you can follow my reasoning for just a minute and we'll go on. Does God add them to the church? Or do I need to add them to the church within 24 hours? You can't hold both positions. They started out by saying God adds them to the church. Now, does God do it or does he not? I mean, if God does it, if that's what he designed baptism for, then whether I believe it or not, it happens, brethren. And that's the God I worship. If he says baptism causes church membership and he adds them to the church upon baptism, then he does it whether I believe it or not. That's right. But now they've opened that baby up to where as long as I do within 24 hours, I'm okay. And then when they heard that I did one on Saturday, they opened it up to a Jewish day. Now, I appreciate the grace and mercy. (laughs) But I hope the grace and mercy shows you they don't know what they believe. Because if God does, it doesn't doesn't matter what I believe or when we add them, because God added them. Right. If we hadn't taken poor cat... Did you realize your baptism was this important, sister? <laughs> you and I could be on two poles with faggots under our feet burning away one of these days. <laughs> if they ever take back their Jewish mercy. <laughs> you know, I'm laughing a little bit right now, but anybody that knows me, you know, it's not all laughter. I don't like differences, I don't like to fight. I don't like being sarcastic with people I love, but I can't stand error. Amen. And error this foolish deserves a little bit of sarcasm, if you'll allow me. I'm looking forward to someday where we baptize someone on Friday night and see if they can get a 48-hour Jewish day. (laughs) Brethren, show me a verse that baptism results in church membership. I have read Acts 2.41 for four years. I'm not preaching this on a four-day notice. I have worked this thing over for four years. I have read, I have listened, I have been like Elihu, listening to stuff go back and forth for 31 chapters. It's been four years, and listen, it's time to give my opinion. I think it all stinks. And I am I'm not saying I'm Elihu. God help anyone that believes that. But on this subject, I don't think it takes a whole lot of enlightenment from God to see past it. And they're realizing that among their own members, and I think all of you can see this rather plainly without me pushing anything very hard. Acts 2.41, I hope you know what it says. I hope you know what it proves. I hope you know what it does not prove. It is simply a historical description that there was a response to Peter's preaching and that on that day the 120 jumped to 3,120. What? A great day of evangelism in the history of the New Testament church. And that all took place on the day of Pentecost. How does the Lord add to a church? How does the Lord add to a church? 
There's only one way he can add, brethren, that is providentially bringing together converted elect for us to take them in. That's right. He opened the heart of Lydia. It says the Lord opened the heart of Lydia, Acts 16, 14, so that she attended unto the things that were spoken by Paul. When, when God brings us someone our way, and they hear what's preached, and they believe it, and they say, God is in you of a truth, and they want to be part of us. That is all the providential operation of God. That's how God adds to the church. But the actual incorporating of them into our number takes place when you receive them. See, the first half of that operation has already occurred in the life of John Perno. The second half hasn't. Did God bring him our way? Listen, we're a family, aren't we? God brought him our way. Anybody that could come into this town and sit in the, cafe, in the student lounge at Bob Jones University reading the Saturday paper, finding the religious section, finding our little ad, and in that place deciding to come to the Greenville Church. That's God's providence. Amen. You didn't know that, did you? When he told me that the other night, I just about came unglued. <laughs> Sitting in the snack shop at Bob Jones University, he found out about the Greenville Church. And he came. I'm still looking forward to the second half being true. God brings a... Who does he bring our way and why does he bring them our way? 1 Corinthians 12, 18 says, God hath set in the church such as pleased him. Every one of the members in this church are here for a reason. Amen. You all have gifts to add to this church. God does not give the same gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, the whole lesson is, a body has many different members. The Holy Spirit has many different gifts and diversities of operations and administrations. But by incorporating a variety all together into a church, we have the great body of Christ in Greenville. Acts 2.41 doesn't prove anything, brother. Another argument. Look at Matthew 28. I have not pushed this issue. All of you know that. I have sat on this for four years. It has been pushed by someone else, not by me. But it's been pushed to the point where now I'm taking this public position. I have taught you little bits and pieces here and there over the last four years, and we have separated the two events without making it a, a distinction between anyone. I have tried to avoid that. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus told his apostles, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Three steps in evangelism. Teach, baptize, and teach. Teach about Jesus, baptize them in the name of Jesus, and teach everything else. The argument runs this way. Please believe me. If after baptism you are to teach the disciples of Jesus Christ to observe all things that Christ commanded, and since Christ commands some things you can only keep if you're in a church, therefore baptism must put you into the church. Let's follow that out just a moment. Did Jesus Christ ever say anything about husbands loving their wives? Did he ever say anything about fathers training their children? Did he ever say anything about those that stole to steal no more? Do you know what I conclude from that line of reasoning? That baptism also makes you a thief, a husband, and a father. 
I quote, In Matthew 28, 19-20, those who are baptized are to be taught to observe all things which Jesus commanded. These things include instructions for behavior in the church. Baptized persons out of the church could not observe all things Jesus commanded. The baptized believer must obviously be in a position to observe all things that Christ commanded. Can't you see this from how the very aim of baptism is church membership? If baptized believers do not become church members, then we cannot even obey the commission as Christ delivered it. This is a powerful point. I quote. That was a quote. That's a powerful point? Listen. You are only responsible for the commandments that apply to you. The commandments to wives don't apply to husbands. The commandments to husbands don't apply to wives. And baptism doesn't, make, doesn't qualify you for any of those commandments. It's only if you're married. And it's only if you're a man or a woman. I didn't add this is a powerful point. That was in the quotation marks also. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. This is a, this is a little more valid. At least it's got the word spirit and baptized and body in the same verse. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is, is in the top 10 most perverted texts in the New Testament among major line denominations. Because they make the body here that you get baptized into this big nebulous universal body. But by reading the context, we know that the body of 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is the local church, the church at Corinth. We read in this verse, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. What happens, you can look at this verse and you say, Well, I see the word baptism, and you automatically think baptistry and water. So now that you've got baptistry and water on your mind, you see the Spirit. Aha, I've got the gift of the Holy Ghost too, so that goes into your mind. And you see one body, which is the ch local church. Aha, I've got the gift of the Holy Ghost, water baptism, and church membership all in one verse. I'm set. Now, what is the context of 1 Corinthians 12, 13? The chapter has one theme. The one theme is the Corinthians were envious and had division and strife among them because of the various gifts they had. Remember in the first chapter he said, you don't come behind any church with all the gifts you have. And if you were to read this chapter, you would see very clearly that Paul's argument is this. All of those gifts come from one source, the Spirit of God. That Spirit of God gives those gifts according to his own will. He distributes them severally as he will. That's verse 11. He says in verse 4, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's all sorts of different gifts, but it's one Spirit that does it. Verse 5, there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. There are diversities of operations, but it is the same God, which worketh all in all. And he goes on to describe the human body in verse 12. For as the body is one, that's the physical body, your body, my body. The physical body is one body, Yet it hath many members. It's got arms, legs, noses, eyes, one nose, eyes, ears, and so forth. And all the members of that one body, being many, there's many of them, and they're all different, yet it's one body. So also is Christ. And that Christ there is the local body of Christ. You can tell by reading the, the rest of the chapter. Paul's argument is 
that all the various operations and gifts of the Spirit in a congregation, and there are no two people in this congregation, equally gifted by the Spirit of God in the same way. Right. It is all different as God chooses to grant His gifts. But, you are just like the arms, legs, joints, nose, eyes, and ears of a human body that are actuated and receive their strength and direction from one human soul. All, what is this arm if it was laying on the floor by itself? What could it do? It could do nothing because it is actuated and directed and receives its strength from one human soul, which makes all of this one body. So is Christ. All these different members, all operating at my command because the commands are coming from one source. All the gifts of these different members are functioning for the overall benefit of my whole body because their gifts are coming from one source. So is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Greek, whether you're a bond, whether you're free, whether you're gifted, not very gifted, whatever administration God's given you, we are activated by one Spirit of God. One Spirit, the Holy Spirit, brings us together providentially into a body. What is the word, for by one Spirit are you all baptized? That isn't water baptism, by the way. Do you know who baptized you? It wasn't the Spirit of God. It was a man that baptized you. Even they know that there's not a drop of water in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. That is the Spirit doing a baptizing. And what, what does the word baptize mean? Dip into, place into, stick into, immerse in. Look at the 18th verse to define the word. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. You see the connection? 13 says baptized into the body. 18 says set into the body. It's to be dipped into or stuck into the body. One spirit took each of you from... You, you all have various experiences of life, various levels of conversion, various levels of knowledge, various gifts of the Holy Spirit. God took you all and set you in this body by His Holy Spirit, which was the source of your conversion. And He is the source of your strength within this body. He is the source of your gifts for the benefit of this body. God the Holy Spirit gives you gifts, not for your benefit, but for the benefit of the body. Right. This arm has vitality from my human soul, not for its own benefit, but for the benefit of my body. So is Christ. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, it doesn't matter. You Corinthians, you're envying and strife is all a waste because God's made the choice of who, who of you are going to get the gifts and who are not going to get the gifts and he's put you all together for a purpose and you should all be activated by that one spirit and he, you know how he goes on the very next verse listen and I well let's get it right the foot if the foot shall say because I am not the hand I am not the body is it therefore not of the body Paul is arguing for unity in the Corinthian church based on this you, the members that are in the Corinthian church they the individual specific members that make up the Corinthian church and their specific gifts have all been chosen by one spirit that ought to be actuating the whole church. And that's why he comes down to verse 25, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. 
it shouldn't be a divided schismatic body that is the whole purpose of 1 Corinthians 12 I want to tell you brethren when you meet somebody that wants to go into a chapter and grab a hold of one verse and jump out of that chapter and try to establish something contrary to the testimony of scripture and it doesn't stack up with the context you've got somebody who wants to play with the word of God and I don't care how great they sound they make their rules of Bible interpretation sound if you take a text out of its context you've got a pretext and you've got resting of scripture First right. Corinthians twelve thirteen has nothing to do with water baptism. It has to do with what actuates the group. Look at this mob of people. What ties us all together and what should be actuating us? What source do our gifts come from? What is the purpose for those gifts? It's all one. One, one, one. Unity. There should be no schism in the body is the purpose of First Corinthians 12. That's why he goes on to conclude the chapter. There's some apostles. There's some prophets. There's some teachers and so on. Are all apostles? No way. God's made a difference. Are all prophets? No way. God's made a difference. And yet, chapter 13, guess what? Along comes charity. Do you know what makes a church function? Love. It's unity that's the point of this whole text. He is not teaching some theological lesson on what happens when the H2O is split, when a body comes up out of it. He's teaching a lesson what actuates all the various members in this church. Male, female, gifted, not gifted, bond, free, Jew, Gentile, whatever the case might be. There's one soul activating it just like there's one human soul actuating and directing your body. What does it mean then directly? For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. The word baptized, don't let it confuse you. I'd go to 1 Corinthians 12, 18 and get the word set in the body. For by one spirit are we all set into one body. God the Holy Spirit converts us. God the Holy Spirit providentially brought us together as it pleased Him. And God the Holy Spirit gives us the gifts for the benefit of each other. Right. What does it mean when it goes on to say, and have been all made to drink into one spirit? What's my arm doing right now? What's my arm doing right now? It is drinking. It's drinking blood from my heart and it's drinking actuation from my soul that's telling it to move right now. That is exactly what 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is teaching you. There is one spirit that should be in a church actuating and directing all of its gifts and various members so that it functions and performs as one body where all the members have care one for another. Every one of my members cares about the overall well-being of my body. A church ought to be the very same way. The argument runs like this. When you're baptized in water, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the church. So you end up being a church member in some spiritual way. What does it mean to be a church member in some spiritual way? You become a church member when this congregation receives you and makes you a member. When does the Spirit begin to activate and actuate you with your gifts and make you profitable for each other? When you become a member, how do you become a member? By the church receiving you. When does your function and role in that body cease to exist? When the church puts you out and the Holy Spirit of God leaves you to the judgment of God. <coughs> in and out. The church controls and the Holy Spirit responds by giving gifts. God cannot stick a member into this church without us receiving him. Is the church the temple of the Holy Ghost? Yes, it is. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says the temple. The church is the temple of the Holy Ghost. The church at Corinth 
was the temple of the Holy Ghost. God dwells in us. He walks among us. He's in us giving gifts. He's in us actuating each other for each other as long as we're walking in the Spirit. He dwells in these assemblies. He dwells in us collectively by giving us gifts for the benefit of each other. Some will take that point that the church is the temple of God and just run to excess, that that's how you get in the Spirit, by getting in His temple where He's at. But I want to show you something else. First, whenever you look at 1 Corinthians 3.16, very quickly, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. That is the church, considered collectively. We know that with the next verse. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. And Paul's whole point is ministerial faithfulness. Because he's been talking about Paul and Cephas and Apollos and how they've been laboring as builders with God. And he says of them now, if any verse 12, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work, that's ministerial work, by the context of the chapter. So the body, which is the temple of the Holy Ghost in verse 16, is the church. I'll grant that. I believe that. And a minister can mess up a temple of the Holy Ghost by laying a foundation other than Jesus Christ and what's already been laid. But now look at chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. What? 1 Corinthians 6, 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now that body is not the church. That body is your physical body right. because the context says you can take your physical body and join it to a harlot and you ought not to do that because that's a sin with the body. Most sins are done without the body, verse 18 says. But fornication is sin against your body and Jesus died for your body. That is the physical body the Spirit dwells within. My whole point this evening on the subject of the Holy Ghost, there are two bodies that the Holy Spirit indwells. There are two temples of the Holy Spirit. One is your physical body with a personal relationship to you. The other is this collective body where he has a relationship with all of us in sustaining the one body of these 63 different members. And to, to emphasize one at the expense of the other is to rest Scripture. We need to rightly divide these two things. Amen. We don't have time tonight for a study of the kingdom of God. When you are baptized, you enter the kingdom of God. John preached that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, therefore, and be baptized. Baptism is the door into the kingdom of God. you know why? Because in baptism, you ascribe allegiance to Jesus Christ, and it is his kingdom. Jesus Christ has set up a kingdom. He is the son of David. And how do you make yourself a citizen of that kingdom but by water baptism? And repentance and faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Within that kingdom, after you're baptized, you're in the kingdom of Christ. You might find other citizens of that kingdom who will band together in little groups called churches. And church is no magical word. It simply means a congregation, an assembly, a group. Visualize, if you will, a, break, a great circle. In math, it's called a superset. You have a superset called the kingdom of Jesus Christ. 
within that superset or little subsets called the church at Greenville, the church at Jerusalem, wherever the churches of Christ might be. If you leave one of those churches and move to another church, are you still in the kingdom? Of course you are. But if you have to leave one of those churches because it's not being obedient to its captain or king, do you leave the kingdom by obeying the king? Of course not. The kingdom of Christ is here in this world that there's several phases of the kingdom. We've been over some of this before. There are various phases to the kingdom of God. But the one phase I'm talking about right now is where you make yourself a citizen by active obedience to Jesus Christ. You are baptized in his name. He is my king. He's my Lord. He's my prince. Acts chapter 2. That's why Peter kept saying, God hath made that same Jesus Lord. And then three verses later, God hath made that same Jesus prince. He is king. And you show your allegiance to him as your king by being baptized in his name. Then if you find a group of people, you join with them in that kingdom. But all those little churches are not exactly the same as the kingdom. This little church right here is the body of Christ by itself without regard to anyone else. That's why if you talk about this body and another body together, you use the plural word bodies. But have you ever heard about kingdoms? There's one kingdom. It's the superset of all those that have obeyed Jesus Christ. And it is definitely based on baptism. John the Baptist was baptizing people, and they were going into the kingdom of God. Jesus said they were. But I'll tell you one thing. They weren't local church members because there wasn't a local church. One more. I'm, one more, please. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I want to go over this one because it's going to show once again... For those of you who watch closely that we interpret our Bibles differently. How many of you have ever heard of some great big important rule of Bible study called primary definitions? Um, many of you. There is a first rule of Bible study. No prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation. You better make it fit. Amen. And the first place you better start is where you find it written. That's right. What is the context? What is the context? Romans chapter 6 reads this way. Verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. 41 is a historical description of what took place on the great day of Pentecost. Do you know why the words the same day are in that verse? Because of the first verse of this chapter. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come. The day of Pentecost was the landmark day in the history of the New Testament. It is the pouring out of God's Holy Spirit. It is the 50th day after the Passover. It was a great feast day in Israel. And on that great day of Pentecost, God poured out His Spirit and forever changed His dealings with men. And that is why on the same day, the 120 jumped to 3,120. You read Acts chapter 1 and you think, what a pitiful little group. Why, Jesus Christ worked three and a half years and they only had 120. And God wants you to know in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41 that in one day God made that 3,120. But you look at that text and you try to get out of Acts 2.41 that baptism causes church membership. Try to get out of that verse that baptism happens at the same time as church membership. 
It can't prove that from that verse. It doesn't even come close to it. Right. The use of the words the same day tell you that it's two different events that happen to take place in the same 24 hours. But it doesn't even say it happened to the same group of people. Right. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. What can you prove from that statement? Those that gladly heard the word of Peter as he preached and what he told them they ought to do, they were baptized in <laughs> obedience to what he said. That's what it proves. What does the next statement prove? And the same day, there was added unto them about 3,000 souls. It says that 3,000 disciples on the same day that Peter preached joined the 120. It does not say that it was the ones baptized. Peter could have baptized 5,000 on that day, and they could have gone back to their homes where they were from. Did you read that in the first part of Acts chapter 2? He could have baptized 5,000, 2,000 went home, and 3,000 joined. He could have baptized 15,000 and 12,000 went home and 3,000 joined. He could have baptized 25 and 2,975 that John the Baptist had baptized three years earlier decided to join also. Do you, do you understand that? The text doesn't prove anything. That's right. Some people under the sound of my voice have had the pleasant experience of asking whether this text is a proof text, the beginning of Bible studies, and hearing that it is, and after asking a few questions, a half an hour later or so, asking whether it's a proof text, it's not. It is a proof text. Do you know what it proves? Those that got excited about what Peter preached were baptized. And sometime also on that day of Pentecost, 3,000 decided to join the 120. Do you know what it doesn't prove? It doesn't prove any relationship between baptism and being added to the church. Right. It simply says they both happen in that 24-hour period. The reason we have the words the same day are because this day is important. The very words the same day mean they were two different events. One not causing the other. They were two different events happening in the same day. Read it for yourselves. This is the text, brethren, someday you may face. Whether I am here or I am not here, what will you do with Acts 2.41? Will, some, will you let someone tell you that Acts 2.41 shows that baptism causes addition to a church? Will you let someone show you that baptism and being added to a church must occur the same day? It's not You can't even prove it's the same group of people in both parts of that sentence. And nowhere else in the Bible can you find that necessary. Right. You can go home on your Godspeed and look up the words the same day and have a, have a lot of fun. I mean, the Bible uses the words the same day a lot, describing two events that took place in the same day. Go to those verses and try to get one causing the other. It's just like in the same hour the Philippian jailer was baptized that we read about this morning in Acts 16. Does that mean that every time we preach the gospel to someone, they better be baptized within an hour? Brethren, I've been told that if we don't take members in in the same day in which they're baptized we're going to be disorderly and I'm going to be a heretic the overlords that told me that told me that they'd show mercy and allow that to be either a Roman day or a Jewish day so that Catherine's baptism could stand bless their hearts I'm forever in gratitude because 
She was baptized after 6 p.m. on a Saturday evening and taken in the next morning. God is my witness, and there are witnesses in this room that I am speaking the truth. But that baptism wasn't heresy because it was within the Jewish day. I'm still working on trying to figure out what it means if we're ruled out of fellowship. I didn't know we had any. <laughs> I mean, I get these registered letters telling me that we're not going to be in fellowship and I'm going to have to suffer the consequences and show them to Sherry and ask her, what's the consequence? What is this fellowship that I'm going to miss out on? I thought I, the, the only fellowship I know about, brethren, short of heaven itself, is right here in this room. That's right. And I don't have any outside of it. Because you are my, the fellows with me. They say baptism results in church membership. They say that when a person is baptized, God adds them to the church. I hope you can follow my reasoning for just a minute and we'll go on. Does God add them to the church? Or do I need to add them to the church within 24 hours? You can't hold both positions. They started out by saying God adds them to the church. Now, does God do it or does he not? I mean, if God does it, if that's what he designed baptism for, then whether I believe it or not, it happens, brethren. I and mean, that's the God I worship. If he says baptism causes church membership and he adds them to the church upon baptism, then, then he does it whether I believe it or not. That's right. But now they've opened that baby up to where as long as I do within 24 hours, I'm okay. And then when they heard that I did one on Saturday, they opened it up to a Jewish day. Now, I appreciate the grace and mercy. <laughs> but I hope the grace and mercy shows you they don't know what they believe. Because if God does, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what I believe or when we add them, because God added them. Right. If we hadn't taken poor cat, did you realize your baptism was this important, sister? <laughs> <laughs> you and I could be on two poles with faggots under our feet burning away one of these days. <laughs> if they ever take back their Jewish mercy. <laughs> You know, I'm laughing a little bit right now, but anybody that knows me, you know, it's not all laughter. I don't like differences. I don't like to fight. I don't like being sarcastic with people I love. But I can't stand error. Amen. And error this foolish deserves a little bit of sarcasm, if you'll allow me. I'm looking forward to someday where we baptize someone on Friday night and see if they can get a 48-hour Jewish day. <laughs> Brethren, show me a verse that baptism results in church membership. I have read Acts 2.41 for four years. I'm not preaching this on a four-day notice. I have worked this thing over for four years. I have read, I have listened, I have been like Elihu listening to stuff go back and forth for 31 chapters. It's been four years, and listen, it's time to give my opinion. I think it all stinks. And I am and I'm not saying I'm Elihu. God help anyone that believes that. But on this subject, I don't think it takes a whole lot of enlightenment from God to see past it. And they're realizing that among their own members, and I think all of you can see this rather plainly without me pushing anything very hard. 
Acts 2.41, I hope you know what it says. I hope you know what it proves. I hope you know what it does not prove. It is simply a historical description that there was a response to Peter's preaching and that on that day the 120 jumped to 3,120. What? A great day of evangelism in the history of the New Testament church. And that all took place on the day of Pentecost. How does the Lord add to a church? How does the Lord add to a church? There's only one way he can add, brethren, that is providentially bringing together converted elect for us to take them in. That's right. He opened the heart of Lydia. It says the Lord opened the heart of Lydia, Acts 16, 14, so that she attended unto the things that were spoken by Paul. When, when God brings us someone our way, and they hear what's preached, and they believe it, and they say God is in you of a truth, and they want to be part of us, that is all the providential operation of God. That's how God adds to the church. But the actual incorporating of them into our number takes place when you receive them. See, the first half of that operation has already occurred in the life of John Perno. The second half hasn't. Did God bring him our way? Listen, we're a family, aren't we? God brought him our way. Anybody that could come into this town and sit in the the student lounge at Bob Jones University reading the Saturday paper finding the religious section, finding our little ad, and in that place, deciding to come to the Greenville Church. That's God's providence. Amen. You didn't know that, did you? When he told me that the other night, I just about came unglued. (laughs) Sitting in the snack shop at Bob Jones University, he found out about the Greenville Church, and he came. I'm still looking forward to the second half being true. God brings up who does he bring our way and why does he bring them our way first Corinthians 12 18 says God hath set in the church such as pleased him every one of the members in this church are here for a reason you all have gifts to add to this church God does not give the same gifts first Corinthians 12 the whole lesson is a body has many different members the Holy Spirit has many different gifts and diversities of operations and administrations. But by incorporating a variety all together into a church, we have the great body of Christ in Greenville. Acts 2.41 doesn't prove anything, brethren. Another argument. Look at Matthew 28. I have not pushed this issue. All of you know that. I have sat on this for four years. It has been pushed by someone else, not by me. But it's been pushed to the point where now I'm taking this public position. I have taught you little bits and pieces here and there over the last four years, and we have separated the two events without making it a a distinction between anyone. I have tried to avoid that. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Jesus told his apostles, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Three steps in evangelism. Teach, baptize, and teach. Teach about Jesus, baptize them in the name of Jesus, and teach everything else. The argument runs this way. Please believe me. 
If after baptism you are to teach the disciples of Jesus Christ to observe all things that Christ commanded, and since Christ commands some things you can only keep if you're in a church, therefore baptism must put you into the church. Let's follow that out just a moment. Did Jesus Christ ever say anything about husbands loving their wives? Did he ever say anything about fathers training their children? Did he ever say anything about those that stole to steal no more? Do you know what I conclude from that line of reasoning? That baptism also makes you a thief, a husband, and a father. I quote, In Matthew 28, 19-20, those who are baptized are to be taught to observe all things which Jesus commanded. These things include instructions for behavior in the church. Baptized persons out of the church could not observe all things Jesus commanded. The baptized believer must obviously be in a position to observe all things that Christ commanded. Can't you see this from how the very aim of baptism is church membership? If baptized believers do not become church members, then we cannot even obey the commission as Christ delivered it. This is a powerful point. I quote. That was a quote. That's a powerful point? Listen, you are only responsible for the commandments that apply to you. The commandments to wives don't apply to husbands. The commandments to husbands don't apply to wives. And baptism doesn't, make, doesn't qualify you for any of those commandments. It's only if you're married. And it's only if you're a man or a woman. I didn't add this is a powerful point. That was in the quotation marks also. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. This is a, this is a little more valid. At least it's got the word spirit and baptized and body in the same verse. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is, is in the top 10 most perverted texts in the New Testament among major line denominations. Because they make the body here that you get baptized into this big nebulous universal body. But by reading the context, we know that the body of 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is the local church, the church at Corinth. We read in this verse, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. What happens, you can look at this verse and you say, Well, I see the word baptism, and you automatically think baptistry and water. So now that you've got baptistry and water on your mind, you see the Spirit, aha, I've got the gift of the Holy Ghost too, so that goes into your mind, and you see one body, which is the ch local church, aha, I've got the gift of the Holy Ghost, water baptism, and church membership all in one verse, I'm set. Now what is the context of 1 Corinthians 12, 13? The chapter has one theme. The one theme is the Corinthians were envious and had division and strife among them because of the various gifts they had. Remember in the first chapter he said, you don't come behind any church with all the gifts you have. And if you were to read this chapter, you would see very clearly that Paul's argument is this. All of those gifts come from one source, the Spirit of God. That Spirit of God gives those gifts according to his own will. He distributes them severally as he will. That's verse 11. He says in verse 4, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's all sorts of different gifts, but it's one Spirit that does it. Verse 5, there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. 
There are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. And he goes on to describe the human body in verse 12. For as the body is one, that's the physical body, your body, my body. The physical body is one body, yet it hath many members. It's got arms, legs, noses, eyes, one nose, eyes, ears, and so forth. And all the members of that one body, being many, there's many of them, and they're all different, yet it's one body. So also is Christ. And that Christ there is the local body of Christ. You can tell by reading the, the rest of the chapter. Paul's argument is that all the various operations and gifts of the Spirit in a congregation, and there are no two people in this congregation, equally gifted by the Spirit of God in the same way. Right. It is all different as God chooses to grant His gifts. But you are just like the arms, legs, joints, nose, eyes, and ears of a human body that are actuated and receive their strength and direction from one human soul. All, what is this arm if it was laying on the floor by itself? What could it do? It could do nothing because it is actuated and directed and receives its strength from one human soul, which makes all of this one body. So is Christ. All these different members, all operating at my command because the commands are coming from one source. All the gifts of these different members are functioning for the overall benefit of my whole body because their gifts are coming from one source. So is Christ. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Greek, whether you're a bond, whether you're free, whether you're gifted, not very gifted, whatever administration God's given you, we are activated by one Spirit of God. One Spirit, the Holy Spirit, brings us together providentially into a body. What is the word, for by one Spirit are you all baptized? That isn't water baptism, by the way. Do you know who baptized you? It wasn't the Spirit of God. It was a man that baptized you. Even they know that there's not a drop of water in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. That is the Spirit doing a baptizing. And what, what does the word baptize mean? Dip into, place into, stick into, immerse in. Look at the 18th verse to define the word. 1 Corinthians 12, 18. But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. You see the connection? 13 says baptized into the body. 18 says set into the body. It's to be dipped into or stuck into the body. One spirit took each of you from... You, you all have various experiences of life, various levels of conversion, various levels of knowledge, various gifts of the Holy Spirit. God took you all and set you in this body by His Holy Spirit, which was the source of your conversion. And he is the source of your strength within this body. He is the source of your gifts for the benefit of this body. God the Holy Spirit gives you gifts, not for your benefit, but for the benefit of the body. Right. This arm has vitality from my human soul, not for its own benefit, but for the benefit of my body. So is Christ. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, it doesn't matter. You Corinthians, you're envying and strife is all a waste because God's made the choice of who, who of you are going to get the gifts and who are not going to get the gifts. And he's put you all together for a purpose. 
and you should all be activated by that one spirit. And he, you know how he goes on the very next verse. Listen, and I, well, let's get it right. The foot, if the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not the body, is it therefore not of the body? Paul is arguing for unity in the Corinthian church based on this. You, the members that are in the Corinthian church, the, the individual specific members that make up the Corinthian church and their specific gifts have all been chosen by one spirit that ought to be actuating the whole church. And that's why he comes down to verse 25, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. It shouldn't be a divided schismatic body. That is the whole purpose of 1 Corinthians 12. I want to tell you, brethren, when you meet somebody that wants to go into a chapter and grab a hold of one verse and jump out of that chapter and try to establish something contrary to the testimony of Scripture and it doesn't stack up with the context, you've got somebody who wants to play with the Word of God and I don't care how great they sound, they make their rules of Bible interpretation sound. If you take a text out of its context, you've got a pretext and you've got resting of Scripture. Right. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 has nothing to do with water baptism. It has to do with what actuates the group. Look at this mob of people. What ties us all together and what should be actuating us? What source do our gifts come from? What is the purpose for those gifts? It's all one. One, one, one. Unity. There should be no schism in the body is the purpose of 1 Corinthians 12. That's why he goes on to conclude the chapter. There's some apostles. There's some prophets. There's some teachers and so on. Are all apostles? No way. God's made a difference. Are all prophets? No way. God's made a difference. And yet, chapter 13, guess what? Along comes charity. Do you know what makes a church function? Love. It's unity that's the point of this whole text. He is not teaching some theological lesson on what happens when the H2O is split, when a body comes up out of it. He's teaching a lesson what actuates all the various members in this church. Male, female, gifted, not gifted, bond, free, Jew, Gentile, whatever the case might be. There's one soul activating it just like there's one human soul actuating and directing your body. What does it mean then directly? For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. The word baptized, don't let it confuse you. I'd go to 1 Corinthians 12, 18 and get the word set in the body. For by one spirit are we all set into one body. God the Holy Spirit converts us. God the Holy Spirit providentially brought us together as it pleased Him. And God the Holy Spirit gives us the gifts for the benefit of each other. Right. What does it mean when it goes on to say, and have been all made to drink into one spirit? What's my arm doing right now? What's my arm doing right now? It is drinking. It's drinking blood from my heart and it's drinking actuation from my soul that's telling it to move right now. That is exactly what 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is teaching you. There is one spirit that should be in a church actuating and directing all of its gifts and various members so that it functions and performs as one body where all the members have care one for another. Every one of my members cares about the overall well-being of my body. A church ought to be the very same way. The argument runs like this. When you're baptized in water, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the church. So you end up being a church member in some spiritual way. What does it mean to be a church member in some spiritual way? You become a church member when this congregation receives you and makes you a member. When does the Spirit begin to activate and actuate you with your gifts and make you profitable for each other? 
when you become a member. How do you become a member? By the church receiving you. When does your function and role in that body cease to exist? When the church puts you out and the Holy Spirit of God leaves you to the judgment of God. <coughs> in and out, the church controls and the Holy Spirit responds by giving gifts. God cannot stick a member into this church without us receiving him. Is the church the temple of the Holy Ghost? Yes, it is. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says the temple. The church is the temple of the Holy Ghost. The church at Corinth was the temple of the Holy Ghost. God dwells in us. He walks among us. He's in us giving gifts. He's in us actuating each other for each other as long as we're walking in the Spirit. He dwells in these assemblies. He dwells in us collectively by giving us gifts for the benefit of each other. Some will take that point that the church is the temple of God and just run to excess, that that's how you get in the Spirit, by getting in His temple where He's at. But I want to show you something else. First, why don't you look at 1 Corinthians 3.16 very quickly. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. That is the church, considered collectively. We know that by the next verse. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. And Paul's whole point is ministerial faithfulness. Because he's been talking about Paul and Cephas and Apollos and how they've been laboring as builders with God. And he says of them now, if any verse 12, if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work, that's ministerial work, by the context of the chapter. So the body, which is the temple of the Holy Ghost in verse 16, is the church. I'll grant that. I believe that. And a minister can mess up a temple of the Holy Ghost by laying a foundation other than Jesus Christ and what's already been laid. But now look at chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 19, what? 1 Corinthians 6, 19, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now that body is not the church. That body is your physical body, right. because the context says you can take your physical body and join it to a harlot, and you ought not to do that. Because that's a sin with the body. Most sins are done without the body, verse 18 says. But fornication is sin against your body, and Jesus died for your body. That is the physical body the Spirit dwells within. My whole point this evening, on the subject of the Holy Ghost, there are two bodies that the Holy Spirit indwells. There are two temples of the Holy Spirit. One is your physical body with a personal relationship to you. The other is this collective body where he has a relationship with all of us, in sustaining the one body of these 63 different members and to to emphasize one at the expense of the other is to rest scripture we need to rightly divide these two things amen we don't have time tonight for a study of the kingdom of god when you are baptized you enter the kingdom of god John preached that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, therefore, and be baptized. Baptism is the door into the kingdom of God. 
You know why? Because in baptism you ascribe allegiance to Jesus Christ, and it is his kingdom. Jesus Christ has set up a kingdom. He is the son of David. And how do you make yourself a citizen of that kingdom but by water baptism? And repentance and faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Within that kingdom, after you're baptized, you're in the kingdom of Christ. You might find other citizens of that kingdom who will band together in little groups called churches. And church is no magical word. It simply means a congregation, an assembly, a group. Visualize, if you will, a, break, a great circle. In math, it's called a superset. You have a superset called the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Within that superset are little subsets called the church at Greenville, the church at Jerusalem, wherever the churches of Christ might be. If you leave one of those churches and move to another church, are you still in the kingdom? Of course you are. But if you have to leave one of those churches because it's not being obedient to its captain or king, do you leave the kingdom by obeying the king? Of course not. The kingdom of Christ is here in this world. There's several phases of the kingdom. We've been over some of this before. There are various phases to the kingdom of God. But the one phase I'm talking about right now is where you make yourself a citizen by active obedience to Jesus Christ. You are baptized in his name. He is my king. He's my Lord. He's my prince. Acts chapter 2. That's why Peter kept saying, God hath made that same Jesus Lord. And then three verses later, God hath made that same Jesus Prince. He is king. And you show your allegiance to him as your king by being baptized in his name. Then if you find a group of people, you join with them in that kingdom. But all those little churches are not exactly the same as the kingdom. This little church right here is the body of Christ by itself without regard to anyone else. That's why if you talk about this body and another body together, you use the plural word bodies. But have you ever heard about kingdoms? There's one kingdom. It's the superset of all those that have obeyed Jesus Christ. And it is definitely based on baptism. John the Baptist was baptizing people, and they were going into the kingdom of God. Jesus said they were. But I'll tell you one thing. They weren't local church members because there wasn't a local church one more. I'm, one more, please. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. I want to go over this one because it's going to show once again. For those of you who watch closely that we interpret our Bibles differently. How many of you have ever heard of some great big important rule of Bible study called primary definitions? Um, many of you. There is a first rule of Bible study. No prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. You better make it fit. Amen. And the first place you better start is where you find it written. That's right. What is the context? What is the context? Romans chapter 6 reads this way. Verse 4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now remember, they think baptism results in church membership. This text says that baptism should result in us walking in newness of life. Walk new life. You got those words in your mind? We're primary definition people. We've got three words. Walk, new, and life. Now go to Hebrews chapter 10. Keep your finger there, please. But go to Hebrews 10. Verse 19, Hebrews 10, 19. Having therefore, brethren... Boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, 
by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We've got the word new, the word life, and the word walk in Romans 6. We've got the word new and the word living and the word way in Hebrews 10.20. I'll show anyone who wants to see it. The first argument, walking means you're in a way. Second argument, therefore we can conclude obviously that Hebrews 10 and Romans 6 are parallel passages. Now let's talk about the new and living way of Hebrews 10 and, Rome, and the walking and newness of life of Hebrews 6 just for about two minutes. Baptism symbolizes three things, the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, our physical death and hope for resurrection yet to come. But there's a third thing it symbolizes, and that is that we're baptizing our old man and the sins of that old man to come up out of that water and to walk in a resurrected, changed life. Do we all agree on that? Amen. Baptism symbolizes us walking in a new life. It is a turning point in our life. I tell everybody I've baptized, this is the beginning of the rest of your life. It's not just something that's happened in the past. You're baptizing your old man to walk in newness of life. Romans 6 and verse 4 is something that we ought to do because baptism symbolizes it. It symbolizes a burial of our old sins and a resurrection of a new man. And that we ought to walk in newness of life that is conditioned upon your obedience. Walking in the newness of life is what you ought to do as a result of baptism. It's how you ought to obey God. It's walking with a whole new course of your conversation in this world. That is your responsibility. That's something you do. You may do it. You may not do it. You may do it better some weeks than other weeks. But it's something that is your responsibility. Walking in the newness of life. Does anybody have a problem with that? Romans chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, the Apostle Paul has been dealing with Jews for 10 chapters on the fact that their Old Testament sacrifices could not put away sin. And in Hebrews 10, he talks about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that forever perfected them that are sanctified. Verse 14. And he states it in several different ways. Verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He is talking about something Jesus Christ did. And he comes to verse 18. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. If all sins have been remitted by the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there is no reason to make any more offerings for sin. Verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. We've now been opened up to God. We can go to God because we're no longer sinners because of the legal sacrifice of Jesus Christ. By a new and living way, verse 20, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. That new and that living way is the new sacrifice of Jesus Christ and a living sacrifice that was offered but yet lives in heaven. Jesus himself, who is a living priest that doesn't die with old age like the priests of the old covenant. 
It's a new and living way to God. And it is legal. Right. Romans chapter 6, the walking in newness of life is practical. It's our responsibility. Some of us do it, some of us don't. Some of us do it better sometimes than other times. I want to tell you one thing about Hebrews chapter 10. That new and living way has never varied, never shall vary, because it is dependent on the sacrifice Amen. of Christ, and it's perfect once for all. Amen. It is not the same thing. And right. to see men try to connect Romans 6 and Hebrews 10 and make them obvious, quote, parallel passages, unquote, and then try to teach that since baptism gets you into the walking in the newness of life, and the walking in newness of life is the same as the new and living way, then baptism gets you into the new and living way. And since the new and living way is associated with assembling in churches, in verse 25, baptism gets you into churches. That's what I've had to deal with. For anybody that knows their Bibles and can think of the implications of using your Bible that way, you are tying a legal benefit of Jesus Christ's sacrifice to the waters of baptism, and you think I'm exaggerating when I say you are walking back into the jaws of baptismal regeneration. Think about it. That's right. Think about tying legal benefits to practical obedience. Isn't that what we stand for in this church against everyone else? That's right. We don't mix those two things. And for anybody that thinks I'm exaggerating this argument, there are witnesses in this congregation. I have it in print. I'll show it to anyone who wants to see it. Read the context. Don't ever let somebody take a verse and connect it up because it's got the word new in it. I've got children, maybe, that are young enough to do that. They would find the word new in some verse and the word new in another verse and think the verses are talking about the same thing. God made us with minds. Listen, there are concepts that ought to be related. God is not a slave to words, and neither is he a slave to the Oxford English Dictionary. Amen. Read your Bibles. What is the concept God's trying to teach? The concept in Romans chapter 6 is bury your old man, walk in a new life. The concept in Hebrews chapter 10 is Jesus Christ has opened up a new way to God legally by Amen. his sacrifice. And brethren, you start getting those two things confused. I don't know who the mother of Jesus is anymore. That's not difficult unless you sit there and let an argument be made about primary definitions and, and get you off track of reading context. I will preach a series of messages on hermeneutics because I'm being accused of having heretical hermeneutics because I study by context. But when it reads over Nehemiah chapter, God is my witness. In Nehemiah chapter 8, when the Levites read the law of God distinctly and gave these sense, I'll tell you one thing they didn't do. They had never read a dictionary in their lives. That's right. Listen, if reading distinctly and giving the sense simply requires a dictionary for primary definitions, and some of you are now lost, but some of you know exactly who and what I'm talking about, if that's all that's required, then what in the world is the gift of the ministry? And listen, I'm going to go home, and I will get you all a coupon to get an Oxford English Dictionary for $24.95 from the Book of the Month Club in Pennsylvania, and you can have a ball. That stinks. That stinks. That results in a literal use of the Word of God that ends up in absurdities, and I'll give you a list of those absurdities that I've collected over the years if you want some entertainment sometime. I just gave you one. Isn't it entertaining? <laughs> you get the word new in two places and say, well, I got the word new, I got the word new. My OED says it's the same. God, the Holy Spirit, inspired that book. Now I've got these two, the obviously parallel passages. 
Let me see. Baptism starts this one. This one's the same as that one. This one's connected with church membership. Aha! Baptism causes church membership. If you make baptism the means for church membership, I'll tell you one thing. You'll be able to look at the churches that believe that and know, and see by the life of the church that they're in error. Because when baptism makes church members, it doesn't make very good church members. A living church, a lively church, a church that serves one another and loves one another doesn't get that from H2O, brethren. They get it by active obedience and constant preaching of the six bonds that I went over this morning. And you find a church that believes baptism causes it, I'll show you a church that can justify non-resident members with no communication and no communion whatsoever without ever batting an eye. I'll show you members living in the same city that hardly know each other. I'll show you a church that functions hardly any more than a two-hour lecture given on Sunday mornings. That is something we have got to guard against. Amen. This body is supposed to be a living body for the benefit of every member, and we are to be contributing to the lives of each other. I've been over this so many times. Do you know how many adjectives I could use and verbs and responsibilities we have to admonish one another, to provoke one another, to care for one another, to love, to warn, to comfort, to rebuke, to reprove, to rejoice when one rejoices, to weep when one weeps? All of that is the responsibility of this church, and you don't cut it simply by baptizing a person 2,000 miles away and saying they're a member. That isn't a body of Christ. Right. Are we standing alone on this point? Are we out in left field? I, I hardly ever tell you about anyone that believes the same thing as we do because it really doesn't matter as long as God believes what we do. That's what counts. And that the word of God is what God believes. Amen. But we're not all alone, brethren. The great Baptist leaders that I'm able to get who even wrote about the subject, no one's ever wrote the arguments you've heard tonight. No one ever, ever, ever. Listen, they were intelligent men that wrote commentaries. They never, ever, ever reasoned that way. You couldn't find those arguments if you searched from now until eternity. Men like John Gill, John L. Dagg, who was a great Southern Baptist leader in the 1800s, B.H. Carroll, a great Southern Baptist leader. I'm only mentioning these men because they are great Baptist leaders, and this is what they taught ministers under their care. I have all I have their writings on this point in print. It will be in your 25 pages. You will jump up and down and say, thanks be to God for showing us that other men took a strong stand on this position. Wait till you read the testimony of John Gill. But those who claim John Gill, listen, brethren, in 1970. Six, when I was first presented the truth, I was told to read John Gill. And now I'm holding to what John Gill taught, and I'm a heretic. John Gill taught it down the line just exactly as we understand at this point. I mean, that guy may have been off on other points, but he was right on on this point. The Primitive Baptists love John Gill, but the Primitive Baptists deny John Gill. And I don't really care what John Gill believed. John Gill dies just like every other man. He was a liar while he was alive just like every other man. All that counts is what God taught. And don't take me wrong for even mentioning their names. I'll tell you why I mention their names. To have a proper baptism, you've got to have a proper result. To have a proper result, you've got to have ministers doing baptizing and church receiving members who believe that baptism causes church membership. 
They subject themselves to a lineage of churches believing a particular form of doctrine, and you cannot find such a thing. You go back among Baptist churches, and that's the only reason I mention these men's names. You go back, back among Baptists, like these men, and they absolutely deny it in strong terms, and I challenge you to read it in your outline. They subject themselves to a lineage of men. We do not. 